My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Hi, this is Pastor Lane Jones from Calkins Baptist Church. I uh, came across this uh, little brief article on Leonard Syme, a professor of epidemiology at University of California, Berkeley. Um, he indicated the importance of social ties and social support systems in relationship to mortality and disease rates. He points to Japan as being number one in the world, and this, this is in this day that he was studying this, with respect to health. And then he discussed the um, close social, cultural, and traditional ties that Japan has um, as the reason he felt for their uh, good health. Uh, he believed that the more social ties, the better. Uh, the health of the uh, individual is going to be benefited by social ties, and the, actually the death rate is going to be lowered. Conversely, he indicates that more isolated the person is, the poorer uh, the health becomes and the higher the death rate. Social ties are a good preventative medicine, he says, for physical problems and for mental, emotional, behavioral problems. And this was a study that was done no later than 1985. It came out in a book, um, competent, uh, How to Counsel from Scripture, in 1985. So this is way before uh, the epidemic. I think we all know that relationships are really important. And what we're dealing with is Jesus' message in the what was commonly called the Upper Room Discourse. And uh, he's dealing uh, with four major relationships that the Christian is going to have as he talks to his disciples uh, the last time he's really going to be with them before his crucifixion. It's actually on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Matter of fact, I'd like to uh, start by uh, calling your attention to John chapter 14 and verse 31, where the last sentence of that verse says, Jesus speaking now, he says, Arise, let us go from here. So uh, that brings some questions. Where are they? Well, they'd been in the upper room. That's why this is commonly called the upper room discourse, and the fact that Jesus was speaking from the upper room where they uh, celebrated the uh, Passover meal and Jesus' last supper with his disciples where he instituted what we commonly call the Lord's Supper or communion today. Uh, so he's speaking uh, during chapter 13 and 14 of the Gospel of John to his disciples in the upper room. Judas, by the way, was dismissed partway through that uh, discussion time. Jesus identified him as the betrayer, and he went out to betray the Lord. And so a lot of this, especially even what we're talking about today, was uh, spoken by Christ to his 11 loyal disciples alone. So what's been happening? Well, Jesus uh, gave them a lesson on being a servant. He identified Judas, as I said, as the betrayer. He, he then gave them a command to love each other with a different standard. Under the law, the Old Testament law, the standard was to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus upped that standard in chapter 30, uh, 13, verse 35, when he said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. And the love that he's talking about uh, is this new commandment that he said in verse 34, that you would love one another, each now Christian to Christian, as I have loved you. So the standard is not merely loving your neighbor as yourself, but loving your Christian brother or Christian sister as Jesus would love that individual. And this is a high commandment. It's called the New Commandment. And it was instituted just moments before what we'll talk about today. Then Jesus, in chapter 14, gave his disciples four major promises to encourage them. The first promise was of eternal life. 
And in chapter 14, verse 6, uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So he's told his disciples that to come to heaven, to have eternal life, you have to know me. And of course, the 11 that were remained were all loyal to him and did know him as their Lord and Savior. Now, he also uh, gave them a promise that you can accomplish great things for God. As a matter of fact, he told them that they would do greater works than he did. And you say, well, how can that possibly be? And the, the answer is that the salvation of a soul is the greatest miracle of all. We, we underestimate how difficult it is for someone to put their faith truly in Jesus Christ. And maybe you have, have been in that category where you felt like maybe as a child, and, and there's nothing wrong with a childhood conversion, I was saved as a child, but maybe you, you uh, prayed a prayer for whatever reason, you, you uh, maybe were scared or you were in trouble, but it really, re- you really weren't giving your heart to the Lord. It, it is a miracle when someone actually comes to Christ in genuine f- repentance and faith. And so he said, you're going to do greater works than I've done. And, of course, the gospel history since then has borne that a tremendous prophecy out. The third promise he gave to his disciples on that night was that they would experience the eternal presence of the Holy Spirit, and that would come after Christ's resurrection. And the fourth promise he gave them was that they could have God's peace. And let me read you that verse again. What a tremendous uh, promise this is. It's John 14, verse 27, where Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And the difference between the peace that Jesus is talking about and the peace that we often think about is that uh, peace uh, in uh, the, the terms of a person that doesn't know the Lord is often um, really uh, based upon circumstances, a nice place uh, to, to fish, a, a quiet spot, uh, being able to curl up with a book. But Jesus is talking about a peace that goes beyond your circumstances, that you can be in the middle of great trouble and trial, and yet there is a rest in your soul that all is well, because you know the Lord, and you know the Lord is watching over you. And that kind of peace it really is reserved for those who truly know Christ as Savior. And I would just encourage you, if you don't have that kind of peace in your heart and mind, God wants you to have that. But it comes by knowing Christ yourself as your own personal Savior and Lord. Now, the interesting thing is all four of these promises, eternal life, the accomplishing of great purposes for God, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the peace of God that passes understanding, all of these qualifications really begin our rock, um, the, the, the foundation of it, the rock foundation of this is your knowing Christ as your as your personal Lord and Savior. And then really it's simple faith and obedience that that makes these promises uh, come alive to you. And so God wants us to have these four blessings and Jesus uh, laid those out for us. Now, so we've seen where where uh, Jesus was and and what's been happening. Now where where is Jesus headed? Well, where he says, let us go from here, in the end of John 14, he's talking about heading toward the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus will pray until he's arrested. And John alone records this, that they're actually traveling to the Garden of Gethsemane. Have you ever thought about what it, what this means for Christ? Um, when, until the moment he is arrested and rushed off to be beaten, condemned, and tortured to death, Jesus is spending his last hours in service. He's not, you know, resting up 
for his crucifixion. He's not taking some me time before uh, he lays down his life. Let me just kind of give you a list of things that he's doing in his last moments on earth. He's washing his disciples' feet. He's eating a final meal with them, which he said he really looked forward to. He's instituting a new ceremony we now call the Lord's Supper or Communion. He's teaching his disciples and preparing them to live without him. And then he's praying until sweat drops of blood are pouring out of his skin because of the stress that he's under. All this before he goes to the cross with the sin debt of the world hanging on his shoulders to endure the wrath of God that is the full punishment in hell that we all earned for our sins against God and others. Think of it. Every sin that's been committed, Jesus would bear the wrath of God against that sin. That is how you and I can be born again. The bottom line is this. Jesus Christ was totally invested in living life for God's glory and for the benefit of people. He wasn't down here trying to live life for himself. Now, many people build their lives around accomplishments instead of relationships. And the problem with living for accomplishments, let's say you have a a sports career, and right now the Olympics are going on. Championships uh, ultimately do not satisfy, and and soon they're forgotten. Uh, Many of you old-timers may remember a guy by the name of Mark Spitz. Maybe a few people have heard about him now that the Olympics have been going again. But Mark Spitz, I believe it was the 1972 Olympics, won seven gold medals, had never been done, and all in, in, in swimming. Uh, but again, many uh, many people would not know of his accomplishments today. In the business field, if you make lots of money, um, eventually that money's going back to somebody else. Rather interesting that uh, there was a, a, a psychologist named James Dobson who for a number of years ran a ministry called Focus on the Family. He talked about uh, playing uh, Monopoly with his family one time, and he, boy, he crushed them all and had a great... Uh, a great time of it, and and yet at the end of the Monopoly game, they all kind of stomped off, uh, you know, didn't, sore losers maybe, but, and then here, uh, uh, Jim is sitting there, he's got to put it all back, and he got to start thinking about that, you know, life is a lot like that, that even though right now that's Monopoly money I'm throwing back in the, in the game, the reality is all of it's going back, all the stuff we could accumulate, it's going to somebody, or it's going to rot, or it's going to be burned, um, it really, when you live for money and you live for the accomplishments of business, um, those things are eventually going to be put back. I watched a guy going out of our church the other day. He had a 1985, what was it? Uh, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a Lincoln, but it was a Mercury, a large Mercury. And that was a boat. I'm telling you, that car was large. And I got thinking about that as I'm watching him drive out of there. I thought, you know, who was in power in 1985? You know, you had President Reagan as as the President of the United States. Uh, you had a, a bunch of people that were uh, serving him and our government and uh, were were um, very uh, major leaders at that time. You know, the reality is many of them are dead. And uh, so business community, you, you eventually um, have to put all your stuff back. Science is a, is a wonderful field to pursue. Yet if your life is wrapped around science, you may improve the physical lives of many through the advancements um, we can often uh, be a blessing with electricity, with with uh, uh, figuring out different ways of energy, all kinds of things that can be done. But you know, you know as well as I do that science can be used for good or for evil. And though science can help us fix the body somewhat at least, it cannot fix the soul. Somebody says, well, I'm going to instead take a career in politics. I think I'll find meaning there. And you can gain power at, and at best help people. 
but those you often uh, help, uh, many times they don't appreciate it. And and this is um, it's rather interesting that that power sometimes goes to people's head. Just just about maybe a year ago or so, um, Putin over in Russia manipulated it so that he is now to retain able to retain power until 2036. So that gives him what 15 years now still. Um, that and and of course if he's still hanging on to life, he probably is going to try to manipulate more. But the reality is that's all going to come to an end one day, and it may be a lot sooner. And Mr. Putin realized this. If you live for power and for for political um, gain, uh, there's an emptiness there too. But you know, there's a great blessing in living for relationships. You can be in any one of these fields, by the way. None of those are illegitimate. Sports, science, business, politics. You can be in any one of those fields and touch the lives of people. And those people are going to live somewhere forever. But the reality is the greatest relationship that you and I really need to go through life is the relationship with our with the eternal God. Matter of fact, again, Jesus, I think I mentioned this first last week, but it bears repeating. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus said, and this is eternal life. He's praying to the Lord, to God the Father. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So in John 15, Jesus is still teaching his disciples, and us by extension, by the way, how to live without him, physically present among us. And so he discusses four different relationships that uh, both his disciples and those of us who are following him today are going to have as we go along life's path, and how do we live and uh, function well in these relationships. Let me give you the four of them, and then we'll look at them individually. First of all is your relationship with Jesus himself. And there's a key word for each of these, and this word for your relationship with Jesus is abiding. And we'll talk about that. Then there's a relationship with your Christian brother. I mentioned that earlier, and the fact of this new commandment, that we're to love our Christian brother as Jesus loves us. Well, the key word uh, to that relationship is going to be the word imitating, that we're to imitate what Jesus' love is for us. Then there's a relationship with the lost world. What about those that don't know the Lord, don't know Christ as Savior, and honestly, many times they're hostile to Christians and to what they believe. And the key word there is enduring. How do we endure? How do we stay true to the Lord? And then is our relationship with the Holy Spirit and letting him control our lives. And the key word there is the word listening. So let's go ahead and look at these four relationships one by one and and talk about them as Jesus did in John chapter 15. I'm starting at verse 1. He says, I am the true vine, Christ speaking, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now it becomes pretty obvious what Jesus' illustration of abiding is, and it is um, the branches on a grapevine. And so you have this image of abiding. And, and so Jesus is saying, I am the vine. You're to abide in me. And he says, God the Father is like the vine dresser. He orchestrates events in your life when you are his child to make you more fruitful and productive for God's kingdom. And they could be events that look good to you or actually look very difficult or even tragic to you. But God, in his wisdom, 
is orchestrating the events in your life, if you have, have accepted Christ, he's orchestrating the events in your life to make you fruitful, to make you more of a benefit for God's kingdom and for the souls of other people than you ever would have been had you made up your own course of life. And so uh, the, the believer's course many times is confusing, but God the Father is the one who's orchestrating that. And, and the big key is not to try to jump out of the vine. It's not to try to say, well, God, I don't want you orchestrating my life. I want to do it on my own, if you please. That's not the, the, what the believer's attitude to be, is to be. It's to be, Lord, what do you want? Who do you want me to marry? Uh, what do you want me to do about a job? What do you want me to do about my finances? How do you want me to handle raising my kids? Abiding in the Lord is the idea of relying on him, letting him control and and dictate the course of your life. Now, okay, so we, we have this picture of Jesus being the vine and God the Father being the vine dresser, but who are we? Well, I left off at verse 4 where he said, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Let's stop there for just a second. So we see that the truly saved are the branches of the vine. And again, the picture then of God the Father, um, in in verse 2, he removes the false disciples and he prunes the true disciples. Back in verse 2, it says, every branch that does not bear fruit, that's a false believer. Many people claim to be Christians and are not. They go to church every Sunday. Some of them preach. Some of them teach Sunday school class. Some of them are deacons in the church. But the reality is God sees them, and, and he sees them accurately. They're not bearing eternal fruit. They're not really accomplishing anything for God, or anything that is being done through their life is, is in spite of them, not because of them. God knows they're not fruitful. They're not real. And he removes. He says, I remove the, the, the branch that do, doesn't bear fruit. That's the false disciple. But he also says, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it. And uh, again, you and I have never been a branch, but that would not necessarily, if you uh, think of it, being a, a branch wouldn't be a fun experience when you're saying, well, why are you chopping that off? You know, why, you know, that seems a little painful. And yet what God is doing is, is in spite of the fact that you may experience, definitely you experience pain in this life, there's suffering for believers, uh, there's all kinds of confusing circumstances, those are being used by God to make you more fruitful, just like those of you that go out and prune your shrubs or, or prune your apple tree or your pear tree, whatever. So the picture of the saved is that you're a branch and also, you have been cleansed. He said, you are already clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. That means this, when I come to Christ for salvation and I humble my heart before him and say, Lord, I, I do not deserve heaven. As a matter of fact, I deserve hell. I deserve to, to be cast away from your presence forever, but I ask you to forgive me because of what Jesus did on the cross. When you truly come to Christ and you ask him for salvation, Jesus says, you've already been cleansed. You are forgiven. The sins of your past are put behind you and you are clean. And he also says that when you belong to the Lord, you remain in the Lord. That's why he uses that word abide. 
abide in me. As a matter of fact, he says, if a branch does not abide in me, it's cast away. So the person that is truly saved is going to want to abide in the Lord. Doesn't mean we never drift from the Lord. Doesn't mean there aren't struggles in our lives and times when we may even, you know, question God's goodness. But but the reality is we want to stay with Jesus. We want to stay with our Savior. And we want to follow him. And so we're pictured as abiding with him. And we're also told that we will bring forth fruit. And Jesus even says, I want you to bring forth much fruit. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. And the reality is we cannot orchestrate our lives in order to have eternal impacts on people. We really can't do that. But God can. God can do that through you. And, and sometimes you won't see that. Many times you won't see that. But if you're living for the Lord and you're not ashamed of your Savior and you're telling other people about Jesus, you know what? You're going to find that people are going to be in heaven because of your witness. Even if you've never seen them actually bow before God and pray, you can have an impact on those around you by not being ashamed of your Lord, by being faithful to Him, by being honest. It's interesting. I was, I've been listening to um, an audio book called the Gulag Archipelago. It's going to take me a while to get through it. It's like 20-some hours of uh, material. But one of the accounts, and all of these are from uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, um, he says nothing is made up. Every one of every, every person's name is exactly who they are, every situation, he says, as it was reported to me. And he was talking about a woman, and I do not remember if he had a name for her or not. But she was brought in by the um, by the authorities, and her crime was the fact that she was a Christian. And uh, so I don't know what trumped up charges they had on her, but she is in in front of her interrogator, and and she demanded, which she had the right to, um, I, I demand to see the the case against me. And so her interrogator was outraged that she would demand that, but she was uh, she had some spunk to her, and she said, "Nope, I demand to see that." And so he re- re- relented. He didn't, you know, many times they wouldn't, but he relented and he gave her her case, and she he sent her off to a different room, a different office, quite large office, and there she sat trying to read her case. Well, there were other people in that particular office. Now, remember, this is atheistic uh, Soviet Union. Uh, it's a place where you're forbidden to believe in God, where you can be jailed for believing in God. And as she's over there and she's trying to read her case, a conversation ensued between herself and the workers in that office. And and God, uh, it's interesting, Solzhenitsyn is saying that, that this woman all of a sudden is able to, to preach to these people, and she's a very humble background. She's actually talking to these people about her relationship with God and and she's saying this, why do you persecute the Christian? She said, we are not going to steal. We're honest people. She said, we're going to be working hard. We're your best citizens. Why would you be doing this? What's interesting is the office began to fill up with more and more people. We're talking, again, workers, government workers for the Soviet Union who, who have to really pledge an atheistic belief system. They're crowding into this office to listen to this simple, humble woman profess her faith in Christ and, and the fact of how foolish it was for them to persecute believers. After a while, the, the interrogator uh, came back into the room and was very much, um, uh, um, uh, you know, oh, this is so stupid, you know, shut up and get back in here. And the office personnel who were listening to her shouted him down, told him to be quiet, and the woman was able to continue. I don't know how long it went. I do know this. 
We have no idea where that seed went. That woman was scattering seed. She's like a, she's like a, a plant, again, that was giving off seed so that other people could hear the truth of God and of his son Jesus. And who knows where that seed went. The picture of the saved is a person who's been cleansed, who's remaining in the Lord, who brings forth fruit. Now, how about the lost? You see them in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. The lost person, if you're lost, you do not abide in Christ. Maybe you went to church as a as a young person, as even a uh, even a, maybe up into your teen years, and basically you were going for those that were there, your friends, or maybe you had to go. But as you've been able to make your own choices, you've not abided in the Lord. You've not stayed there. You've you've rejected all of that. You've walked away. That's the picture of a lost person. By the way, Jesus said they'll be you'll be cast out by God Himself, the vine dresser will cast you out, and he says you'll be burned. That's a picture of hell. And may I warn you, if you're hanging on to the fact, oh yeah, I prayed a prayer when I was a child, but you've walked away from everything that that, that is a testimony of Christ, and, and the reality is you've lived a life of rebellion against God and hostility even toward God, don't fool yourself into thinking you're a real branch. Don't think it. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. You need to repent and turn to God before it's too late. Now, there are blessings associated with abiding in the Lord. In verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Answers to prayer. One of the great blessings of recent months, um, uh, remember when I was writing this message, uh, has been uh, that, that I've started uh, writing down specific requests and watching them answered. And that's been really encouraging for me. I, I just do it on my computer. But, but to write down requests that I have, specific requests, the date when I'm asking, update them and give the date when I'm updating them, and then when I see God answer. And it can be very simple things, like we need a different car. It could be something like um, I'm, I'm praying for a situation with, with some people in the church that, that, that they seem to be walking away from the Lord. Or it could be uh, something along a, a project that needs to be done. And it's a great encouragement to be able to see God answer specific prayers. There's a blessing in abiding in the Lord. God is also glorified through the fruit in your life. In verse 8, he says, By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Jesus is saying, I don't want you just to bear a little fruit. I want you to bear a lot of fruit. I want you to have a big impact on people. I want you to be a blessing to many, many people. And the humblest among us can do that. It's not that we can, we can uh, orchestrate it on our own. Let me give you an example. I think about the, the what we commonly call the thief on the cross. I'm, I'm just going through the crucifixion in some of my daily devotions and coming up on that spot. I'm not there quite there yet, but the thief on the cross is a man who has lived a selfish life. He has lived a sinful life. That's why he's being crucified. He's, he real, he's, he, and he says, and before he dies, he says, we're getting what we deserve. But then he says, this man, speaking of Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And if you remember, he said this simple line to Christ. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord, would you forgive me, is what he's saying. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, not only did Jesus save that soul, but think of the many, many souls down through 
the ages who have read that passage in Luke. It's in Luke chapter 23. You could read it in verses 39 to 43. They've read the simple words, the simple faith of that man. And that faith of that man and his salvation has encouraged them to do the same thing. That man's simple statement has rung down through the ages and helped who knows how many people to find Jesus Christ as Savior. I use that often today when I'm talking to people about the Lord. Not only think about that, but think about then those who are converted as a result of the original conversions of those people. What I'm saying is this. Let's say that you have a man and he lives in Minnesota. And, and, and he is um, um, as a father, and, and someone witnesses to him and shows him that account of the thief on the cross. And, and by reading the statement of that thief, Lord, would you forgive me, that question that he had in his heart, and asking Jesus to save him, and, and seeing that Jesus saved him, and then using that and saying, you know what, God can save me, and he puts his trust in, in Christ. Okay, where does that man's faith go? Well, he probably takes it back home, and he talks to his wife and maybe his kids, and now, all of a sudden, the gospel's going to his entire family. And then where do those kids go? You see what I'm saying? That when someone comes to Christ, it's not merely one soul. When they bring forth fruit, that fruit explodes elsewhere. This is how the gospel goes around the world, the true gospel. It's not being born a Christian. It's not merely going to church. It is a living relationship with the Son of God and God through his Son. God is glorified through the fruit of the believer's life. And you have no idea how far that can go when you follow the Lord. Now, he also, this picture of, of, the, of, the, of the vine and how we're the branches when we abide in the Lord, he, he says that you are a recipient, when you uh, are abiding in Christ, you are a recipient of God's love. He says it this way, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Just remain there. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So you say, what do I do to abide in the Lord? Just simply try to walk in obedience with Christ. When God shows you to do something, do it. When God tells you to give something up, give it up. Your obedience to God allows God to express his love for you in greater ways. And let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's say that you have twin sons, and both of these boys like to borrow the car. They're both about 17, 18 years old. And of course, they're the same age. So they both like to borrow the car. But one of the sons, one of the twins, takes good care of the car, making sure that he puts gas back in it when he, when he, when he gets, uh, before he gets back home. He cleans out any food or trash that he accumulates. And basically, he shows great respect and thankfulness for the privilege of borrowing the family car. Now, the second son basically trashes the car. He drives well over the speed limit recklessly. He, he brings the car back dirty inside with trash or whatever he's, he's happened to buy along the way and has no regard for keeping gas in it or really doesn't appreciate the privilege that, that has been given to him to drive a car that he does not own. Instead, he feels this sense of entitlement. And he says something like this at times. He says, well, you let my brother drive the car. You owe it to me to let me do the same. Now, let me ask you this. Are you going to give both sons the same amount of opportunities to drive your car, one that trashes the car and the other one that respects the car and respects the privilege of using it? I would submit to you, you should not. The most loving thing you can do for the irresponsible son is to withhold the use of the car until he shows a genuine remorse for his foolish actions 
and you can trust him to make better decisions on how fast he drives, what he what he allows to stay in the car, how he treats it. Until he treats you and the, and your vehicle with respect, he's going to lose some of the privileges, and he should. So too, the Lord loves to bless you as his child. It's not that you love one twin more than the other. The, the reality is one deserves more responsibility because he is being he's um, he deserves more privilege because he's being responsible whether whereas the other twin though you love him the same does not deserve the same privileges because he's being irresponsible now that's exactly really what's going on with the believer when a believer walks in obedience and loyalty to Christ we get more opportunities to be blessed. God God can take more of what he wants to do for us and bless us and when we walk away from him and when we when we uh walk in in disobedience and yes we know the right thing and maybe but we're walking in disobedience well then we're going to limit the blessings that God would like to give to us one other uh, blessing of being uh, in the, uh, abiding in Christ. The first one was answers to prayer. The second one, that God is glorified with the fruit of your life. Third, you're a recipient of God's love. You, God can, can just express his love to you in a, in a great way. And then fourthly, you are a recipient of Christ's joy. Listen to this verse. This is chapter 15, verse 11. These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus is saying, I want you. Abide in me. Just walk in obedience and faith with me. I want to give you answers to prayer. I want to give you abundant fruit that will glorify God. I want to make you a recipient of my love. I want to pour out my love on you, not just drip it on you. And I want you to have my joy. That joy is a is a happiness in your heart. Again, that's independent of your circumstances because you know that all is well between you and God. That's a summary of the relationship between Christ and his followers. But let me hurry to a second relationship, and that is what about the Christian with his or her brother or sister? And again, the key word here is imitating. It's kind of funny. Uh, President Calvin Coolidge invited some people from his hometown to dinner at the White House, as the story goes. And since these people did not know how to behave at such an occasion as being in the White House with the president... Uh, they kind of put their heads together and they thought, you know, the best thing to do is just whatever the president does, we're going to imitate it. So the time came for serving the coffee. Well, the president poured his coffee into a saucer. As soon as those home folks saw it, they, they did the same. Well, the next thing the president did was to pour some milk in that saucer with the coffee in it. And then he added a little sugar to the coffee in the saucer. And the home folks did the same. And they thought the next thing is that, although it was going to hard, hard to imagine this, that the president was going to drink from the saucer. Well, actually, instead, the president took the saucer with the coffee and the milk and the sugar in it and set it down on the floor for the, for the, uh, for the uh, cat and called the cat over. Well, uh, again, but the, they were at least trying to imitate. And one of the greatest um, ways you compliment someone is by trying to imitate them. And so you find here Jesus is telling us uh, when it comes to your relationship with other Christians, imitate this thing about me. Love them as I love you. Let me, let me read it to you. John chapter 15 now, in verse 12. He says, This is my commandment, that you should love one another as I have loved you. Now, if you and I are to imitate Christ's love for us and our love for our Christian brother, what did he do for us? Well, he said, I want you to love your Christian brothers. I love you. Okay, keep reading. He says, greater love has no man than this, 
that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's the kind of love. This is a sacrificial love. He laid down his life for us. You say, well, um, I can't really imagine myself dying for my Christian brother or sister. Well, in some cases, believe me, believers have done that. But think of it this way, too. When serving your Christian brother or sister may cost you greatly. Let's say that um, here's a person with, with a tremendous need. Maybe they're lonely. And yeah, you'd like to be out doing something else. And the reality is, is that the Lord lays this person on your heart and, 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 and you're going to have to make a choice that I won't be able to go out and do what I want to do tonight. I'm going to have to instead, I'm going to go there and maybe help them clean their house or, or just sit and talk with them. Um, he laid down his life for us. If we're going to love people like Jesus loved us, we need to be willing to lay down our affections, our desires, in order to help other people. Let me give you a, a second thing about Christ's love, and that is he shares God's truth with us. Verse 14 and 15 says, You are my friends if you do what, what, whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You know, good friends can talk honestly with each other. And that's really important. And you can't do that with everybody. You, you walk up to somebody on the street who you don't know, and you say, well, why are you wearing that tie? That, that, that doesn't even match your outfit. Uh, that, that probably isn't going to get you anywhere. But if you had a friend who's close to you, um, you could probably get away with that, and, and, and they would take it well. There's, there's a certain um, closeness that comes by fellowshipping with people over time. And what the Lord is telling us, when it comes to your relationship with your Christian brother or sister, remember that Jesus laid down his life for me. I need to be willing to sacrifice for, my, for those around me that know the Lord. Number two, just like Jesus shared God's truth with us, and personally, through the Word of God today even, I need to be honest with my Christian brother and sister. And that is when there's a problem. Again, I have to have, develop a relationship where I can do that. But I need a fellowship with them. You know, some Christians, when they go to church and the service is over, the first thing they do is they're a beeline out the door. And again, sometimes that's necessary. I've had to do that. I've, maybe I'm traveling somewhere and I, I've, I'm, I'm very pressed on time. And I've told the people at the end of the service, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to shake hands. We often do that at the end of the service. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to leave. And so there are times when you have to just just you know barrel out the door. But but by and large, do you stick around and, and, and encourage and talk to each other? Are you developing relationships? That's very important. You know, sometimes the people that, that make the beeline for the door, months later they come around, they say, Well, nobody's friendly in the church. And the reality is it was a two way street. You you never you never stuck around to even talk to anybody. And you need to think about it. You say, Well, the church isn't friendly. Well, why don't you start the movement then? Why don't you stick around and encourage people and, and talk about the things, Lord? What did you get out of the message? You know, think of some things you can say and, and be a blessing. God shared his truth with us. We need to do the same uh, with our Christian brothers and sisters. And that involves fellowship. That involves encouragement. And then also in verse 16 and 17, and this is really important, God chooses to love and bless us. In verse 16, Jesus says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Now, 
we often think, here's a couple of the myths that we think about love today, and a lot of it's because of just watching the common entertainment of the day. We think that love is more of a chemistry thing. You know, it's more of a feeling-oriented thing. You know, the, the, this, this, this girl makes the, 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 my uh, spine tingle, and this guy, he just really um, has it all together, and, and, and we just hit it off. We have this chemistry. Um, it's not relationships and and genuine love is not about mere feeling and mere um, emotions of the moment. What love really boils down to, and this should be a great encouragement, because of those of you who may be struggling in your marriage, and you're you're saying to yourself, "I never should have married Dick, or I never should have married Sally. She she just is nothing like what I thought she was. She was really lying to me before we got married." Although, just back off for a second. And I want you to think about the fact that you're not bound to your emotions. You say, somebody else is coming to my life, and boy, we hit it off. And we've got, you know, and we just have this chemistry, and I need to ditch my husband. I need to ditch my wife and, and take off with, with so-and-so. Let me tell you, that's the most foolish thing you could do, that when you make a commitment to God and, and, and a spouse, you need to keep that commitment. God is going to hold you to that commitment. And then the second thing is, is that you are not bound by your emotions. You can make a choice. When God chose to love us, it was not because we were beautiful. It's not because we were nice. He loved us when we were sinners. He loved us when we're ugly, when we're, when we're wicked. That's God's love for the world. And he loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son, John 3.16 tells us. And, and the son was the one saying that verse. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So he chose to love us. He chose to bless us. And Jesus is telling his disciples that very thing right now. It's not so much you chose me, fellas. I chose you. And so the reality is you can choose to love. You can choose to love that un- un- unlovely spouse, at least that is in your mind right now. You can choose to love that person. And you can choose to be loyal to that person. And you know what? Love can conquer a lot. When you set your love on someone, and it's not a decision based upon emotion, it's saying, I made a choice. I, I dedicated my life to this person. I will lay down my life for this person. I just in, in, encountered a situation just recently where a man was disloyal to his wife and uh, very mean to her, very cruel to her. The man got sick. And though he had been so vicious to his wife and pushed her off, she was with him. She was loyal to him. And you know what? She was a testimony of the reality that love is a choice. You can make the choice to be loyal even if your other, uh, the other one is not. And, 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 and she was. She was loyal to the man till he died. Now, uh, let's go on to your relationship then, a third relationship. So we looked at relationship with Christ. And the, the key word there is abiding. We looked at our relationship with our Christian brother or sister, and the key word there is imitating. We need to imitate Christ. Now we come to our relationship with the lost, people that don't know Christ, don't want to know him. And the key to this relationship is the word enduring. Uh, a lady by the name of Wilma, who lived a number of years ago, didn't get much of a head start in life. Back in the days when polio was uh, quite prevalent in our country, she had it in her childhood, which left her left leg crooked and her foot twisted inward. So she had to wear braces. Um, after about seven years of painful therapy, she could walk and without braces, 
but um, it was still going to be a long road for her. At age 12, Wilma d- decided she'd try out for the girls' basketball team at school. She didn't make it. But she was determined, uh, little one, and she practiced with a girlfriend and with a couple boys every day, and the next year she made the team. When a college track coach saw her during a game, he noticed she had some speed. And so he asked her to let him train her as a runner. By age 14, now think about this, she had polio as a, as a child. By age 14, she had outrun the fastest sprinters in the entire U.S. In 1956, Wilma made the U.S. Olympic team but showed poorly at that Olympic Games. Um, That bitter disappointment, though, instead of breaking her, it motivated her to work all the harder. And in the 1960 Olympics, she made the team again. She goes to Rome, where Wilma, her last name is Rudolph, Wilma Rudolph won three gold medals, which was the most a woman had ever won up to that point. What was she? She endured. She stuck with it. She was was a, a, a young lady who was determined that she would overcome her uh, uh, disability and would um, would and, and really the disability I think helped shape her character again how God can can many times just prune a person and use circumstances in their lives there's another um, a story very similar of a runner by and his name last name was Cunningham and um, as a child he and his brother they were the ones to start the the uh, I forget if it's a wood or coal stove in the school, the like I think of a one-room schoolhouse where they attended. And I don't know what happened, but on a particular day, there was an explosion in that school before the kids, the other kids, had gotten there. They just it was just uh, Glenn was his name and his brother. And the last thing Glenn could kind of remember from that incident was his brother, who's older than Glenn, pushing him out the door. Glenn's brother perished in the fire. Glenn was saved, but with severe damage to his legs, uh, burned just horrifically. Matter of fact, as um, his legs were hanging uh, limp, as he uh, now later on seated, seated on a bed, the doctor was advising his parents uh, to, that the best thing would be just to amputate the legs. And Glenn begged his mom and dad, "Oh, just please, please don't don't do that." And so, uh, mom and dad decided that they would not. Uh, listen to the doctor's advice right now that they they that just with the pleadings of their son they decided they would give it their best shot to see if Glenn would ever walk again and again this young fella is determined I am going to walk and so there came a day when they would stand him up and and um, and he had tremendous pain rush through his legs as the blood flow began to uh, get back to normal but that gave him hope, and the little guy was not about to give up about walking. And so he, he was able to conquer um, his, his pain, and he got to the place where he didn't, didn't just walk, but he was able to run. And Glenn became a, a kid. Now as he's growing up and, and his late adolescence, probably in early teens, he's, he's just running everywhere, so grateful that he has the ability to run. Uh, Glenn Cunningham was actually became the first a human that we knew of at that time. I'm sure there may have been others before this, but we never knew about it. That could that broke. Well, I think it was the four minute mile, so it would be under five minutes. Now again, a number of people have broken that today, but back in those days, it had never been done. And here's a guy again starting out young, 
with a tremendous tragedy, losing his brother, you know, thinking he was never going to walk, and God used it. And so endurance is an important characteristic for the Christian because many times we we have friends, we have relatives, we have co-workers, we have co-students who do not want anything to do with our Savior and really can despise us for our identification with him. And so here's how Jesus describes this to his disciples. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You know, we in the United States don't know what it's like to have uh, Christians persecuted, but I will tell you that down through the ages it has happened much elsewhere, and it's going on even today. Christians being rounded up in China, Christians being uh, in prison camps and uh, giving a torturous treatment in, in North Korea. Matter of fact, we have on our church prayer list right now two Chinese pastors, um, one who is, is, um, been, was uh, arrested in 2014. He's been tortured for his faith. He has five years still on his sentence. There's another a Christian. He was arrested in 2018. He's still got seven years on his sentence that he's going to have to serve. Ten years he'll be separated from his family. The other man's already been seven years separated from his family, from his church family. The, the, the viciousness of this, Jesus is saying here, okay, the world is going to hate you at times. That's the way it's going to be. They hated me. That's what Jesus is saying. They hated me first. And the, you've been called out of the lost world. That's why they hate you too. He said, uh, how he put it is, you, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Maybe you're even in, in one of those uh, people that, that hates Christians, and you can't even figure out why you're listening right now. But the reality is, when you find a Christian, you want to tear them down. You want to try to find out, because you, you want to assume, so that you can get out from under your guilt and your fear of what's coming, you want to assume that that person's a hypocrite. And sometimes you're right. Not everybody that calls himself a Christian is one, and certainly not. Uh, there's not a Christian who's going to live perfectly. But I'll tell you this, you're not going to be able to hide behind hypocrites when you stand before God. You're not. And you should know that. So here, he said the lost world uh, has a mixed response to Christ. It's rather interesting. Verse 20, he says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word they will keep yours also. So some will persecute you as you follow Jesus. And that's why many Christians are intimidated out of being public about their faith. But some will follow your words as as they did uh, Jesus. And some will listen and some will be converted. And are you willing, if you call yourself a Christian, are you willing to identify with your Savior? And yes, some people will get angry, but so that some people will be reached. Are you willing to do that? Jesus said that's what it's like. He also said that the lost world's real problems are threefold, really. First of all, no relationship with God. Here's how he puts it in verse 21. He says, But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they did not know him who sent me. The problem is that they don't know the Lord. He says, secondly, their problem is that they refuse to turn to God. When they hear about it from you or somebody else, they don't want it. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not. They would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. 
And that's one of the things that uh, unsaved people don't like to be around Christians because it's convicting to them. They bring up things and they refuse to do things that that would be um, uh, that that they that the unsaved person would just readily do. He said, "He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none no one else did, they would have had no sin. But now they have both seen and hated both me and my father." Refusal to turn to God is why so many people don't don't want to be around Christians. And there's one more, and that is hatred for Christ trying to help them. Verse 25, But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Christ exposed sin not to humiliate, but to heal it. Tragically, rather than allowing Jesus to forgive and save them, many hated him for reaching out to them in love. A doctor does not pull off an infected, band, an infected bandage to humiliate the person who put it on, but to heal the festering wound. So too, Christ was exposing the hypocrisy and wickedness of his day, not to humiliate or push away evil leaders who were doing wrong, but to give them a chance to repent. And sometimes that chance comes in the form of a strong rebuke. He was also helping those who would listen to see their sinfulness and repent and be forgiven. We have to learn as Christians to stick with it, not to give up when we're uh, tempted to be shy about our faith in a world that can be hostile to it. You know, it's said that postage stamps are getting more expensive, but at least they have one attribute that most of us could emulate, and that is they stick to one thing until they get there. And, you know, we ought to be like that. We ought to stick to the Lord until we get home to be with Him in heaven. Now, there's a last relationship, and that relationship is your relationship with the Holy Spirit. And um, uh, let me just read the verses. It says, But when the Helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And our relationship with the Holy Spirit, it's he tells us of the truth about Christ and how to be a witness, and we need to listen to him. May God help us, each of us, you and, 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 and I, to have our relationship with, with Christ, our relationship with our Christian brother and sister, our relationships with those who are lost, and our relationship with the Holy Spirit in line so that we might receive the blessings of God. May the Lord bless you. As always, if you have a spiritual need and would like to interact with someone who can help you, you can email us at help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. If you care enough to reach out to us, we would be honored to try to encourage you in your relationship with God in any way we can. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. Life for me, for me, he lives, and everlasting life and